The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord, you have taught us that without love, all our deeds are worth nothing. Send your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts that most excellent gift of charity, the true bond of peace and of all virtues, without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. A reading from Amos. Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over, that we may sell again grain that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with the false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account? And everyone mourn who dwells in it. And all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. And I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The word of the Lord. A reading from 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them 
was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a, had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking away the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management... People may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measure of oils, a measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generations than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in, a little, in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You can be seated. So we're starting a new series today. This fall we will be working through uh, the book of First Peter together. I know for some of you, you're immediately thinking, hold on, Peter is starting the series that has happens to be on 1 Peter. So I'll admit, there are times when I have found myself especially relating to Peter, especially the way, you know, he could get his foot stuck in his mouth all the times, or he just his general stubbornness. But then by the grace of God and my wife, I think I've grown in those things. I don't necessarily relate quite as much. So this series has no relation to the fact that, you know, whether or not I relate to Peter, whether or not we even have the same names, or he's my favorite Bible character. Joking aside there, though, which is hard for me. You should know that. This is really hard at this moment. Uh, I think it's by God's design um, that I read this book this summer, uh, and I just kind of was reading it, and it really hit me, and it really ministered to me, and so I look forward to getting to explore it more with you, get to spend time on it myself that way, but also with you, and I hope it's a blessing to you. And I do encourage you, as we're going through 1 Peter this fall, this book is so packed with good things. We can't hit them all on Sunday. I'm feeling that already today. Um, So read this book at home. Read it a few times as we're going forward. I think you'll be very blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your church and the gift of your word, that we can have it together and read it and hear from you. And I ask that you speak to our hearts and minds. um, Open us up for what is true and right and good. um, Help us. In your name, amen. So for this last summer, um, one of my hopes was to get to do some fun camping with my family. Um, as a family, we haven't done like good, real camping, tent camping, things like that in quite a few years. 
Maybe it's just my opinion. I don't find it fun with young children. Um, But this felt like the year to try to do this. So it was on our list. Then the end of July came, and we're like, wait, we have nothing set up. We haven't done anything. How is this going to happen? So I was like, I'll look for a campsite. Maybe we'll find something. Probably not, but we got to try. And the very first place I looked, there was a great opening. Um, We love Tedaguchi State Park up on the North Shore, and they had a cart-in campsite that was literally like over the shore of Lake Superior um, available. Uh, Actually, the rangers, even when we got there, were like, that must have opened like the minute you were looking for it. Those things always go right away. Um, So we were excited. That was like exactly what we were hoping for. It felt kind of like a special gift for us. But then my middle son, Ellis, he's six and a half, he wasn't like just excited for this trip. It's far too small of an idea. Um, I don't have a word big enough for how excited he really was for this camping trip. He was more excited about it than anything he's been for a long time, which is a lot for Ellis. Um, He had this idea of camping in this trip. I don't know where it came from, but he knew it would be the best thing, like the greatest adventure he'd ever had. So, you know, we would try to explain camping to him again. I mean, it doesn't necessarily work that way, Ellis. Sometimes it's really cold or there's bugs or you got to sleep on the ground. It's not always that great. Nothing worked. It was too much he was looking forward to. Even just the idea of I'm going to cook my food over a fire was too much for Ellis. Um, so for those two weeks, Ellis's expectations about this camping trip, they only grew and grew. And Ellis is one of those kids. I think this was a lot like me as well. Um, he tells you everything that's on his mind. So for two weeks, it's kind of all we heard about or heard questions about, again, how are we cooking food over the fire? This is going to be amazing. But then we got there, and the, you know, when you share everything that's on your mind, there's a flip side to it when then you have to start doing the actual hard work of camping, you know, setting up the tent, waiting to eat dinner because you have to set up the tent. Um, it's colder than we thought. It's rainy. It's buggy. There's other things that aren't under control. And, you know, poor Ellis... He had to struggle a bit with those really high expectations crashing down a bit, and we did hear about it the whole time. But it wasn't just Ellis, of course. We were a little bummed about that trip in general. We all had to, like, find. That was a good thing. Hold on to that. That was fun. Remember that as we went through it. Um, I think Ellis, if you asked him today, would tell you it was an amazing trip, though. I don't know if he remembers the bad at this point. But I was thinking about that story this week, and I was thinking about just how important expectations are, how much they shape us and how much they set us up and what they do in our lives. So as we enter into 1 Peter, um, we're actually going to be challenged a lot by the importance of our expectations. It's really a central idea throughout the whole book, and especially in today's passage. Peter is certain that what we look forward to matters. He's especially certain that as Christians, we have the greatest, most certain expectations that should shape and reshape our lives completely. So let's turn to the text together. As we start off in these first two verses, you immediately see 1 Peter is a letter, And we see it's a pretty general opening to any letter, though there's a lot of good stuff shoved in there. We can't explore it enough today. But it starts out identifying the sender. It's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's a lot more he could say to introduce himself there, but he doesn't have to. The people know his story. They know he's an apostle. It means he uniquely represents and proclaims Christ. But even that short line, it comes as a way to simply let all the listeners and readers know this matters. What's about to be said, this comes with a special authority. We need to take this seriously here. And we see it's a circular letter. It's sent to a variety of churches in a variety of cities. Brenda did a great job reading those cities for you this morning. Um, All those cities were in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. Peter calls these Christians there elect exiles of the dispersion. 
Um, that's not the best way in my mind to say those words. They sound a little big and crazy. Some translate it as resident aliens, or they talk about them as sojourners. The language Peter's using there, he's borrowing from the Jewish people. They would use it to talk about the Jews who lived far from Judea. It was a way of saying that they are far from their true home. But Peter's not writing to Jews or primarily Jewish Christians. Most of his readers were Gentiles. Um, so right away, Peter's actually addressing their, uh, the audience's identity in kind of a surprising way for them. But he's, he's bringing up that identity, he's shifting it, and he's giving it a future focus. He's saying those in the church can live well where they are, of course, but this world is not yet fully home. And then the rest of verse 2 explains this identity. Why are they elect exiles? It's just because simply they've been saved by the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're part of his people. We can't say more about that right now at this moment. But I want you to notice as we're starting, aside from that geographical location, that time location as well, everything about the letter's recipients is meant to be true for the whole church. We're all meant to have this identity of exiles who are elect, but who are saved by God because we have been saved by him. So this letter, while addressed to them, speaks deeply to us as well. So from that introduction, Peter moves into the bulk of this passage, and we see it's mainly, for now, these first verses are a prayer to God. It's a prayer of blessing to God that has a lot of challenge and goodness for us as well. And as we move on into the book, this prayer actually contains kind of all of the major themes of the book. He gets them all right away here. But we'll start with this prayer of praise. It just begins with a blessing, as a blessing of God. That's a standard way that people would praise God, would thank him, just blessed be God. And then the rest of the prayer works out why are we praising God here. It's about what God has done and especially of what he will do. So Peter praises God because by his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. Born again is actually a very regular Christian phrase. We still use that quite a bit even today. The idea of it is meant to emphasize some big key facets of our salvation that is coming through Christ. In Christ, we are born again as children of God the Father. That means that we have relationship with God. Not only that, but we are now heirs of the inheritance that he promises us. But even beginning to think about that inheritance, that pushes us into Peter's main focus. Peter says we've been born again, that's great, but that's really the last time in this prayer that he's going to look to the past of our salvation. Instead, from here, he's going to jump to and really mainly focus on our future. So yes, we're born again, but even this comes with a future focus. We're born again to a living hope. And hope is always future-oriented. It's about that waiting and longing for the good thing to come. But in English, hope is a really ambiguous idea. You know, we might hope for things that never happen. We wish for things and call it hope. In our world, hope is just something like nice thoughts for the future, but it has no bearing on reality. I think there are actually a lot of people in our world that would say, don't pay much attention to hope. It shouldn't have bearing on your, a- your actions. It's not realistic. You can't rely on it. It's not guaranteed in any way. That is not what Peter is talking about. That's not what any of the writers of the New Testament talk about when they talk about hope. Um, for them, for us as Christians, our hope isn't merely a nice thought for the future. It's the expectation of what will certainly happen. And this is because Jesus has died and has been raised from the dead. He's already done all that was necessary. So all of our hopes for the future, all of our deepest longings for what God will do, these aren't just some possible outcomes. They are definite. Our hope is our great expectation for all that our God will certainly, without doubt, do. And this is in line then with how Peter's going to go on to explain our hope. 
you look at verses 4 and 5, he talks about our hope as our inheritance, our inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Our hope, our inheritance, it doesn't decay or rot or die like the things in this world. It's something good and holy, not something that would corrupt us. It never fades or weakens. It will always be as strong and vibrant as it was at the beginning. Peter doesn't describe directly what that inheritance is, but we have a good idea. It's a very common idea um, for Jewish people at this time, for the early Christians in general. Um, It's about our inheritance of all of God's promises. So we think of blessing. We think of restoration, goodness, justice. We can think about inheriting eternal life, inheriting the kingdom of God. Peter goes on to say that not only is this great inheritance, this great hope, not only will it never die, Actually, even right now, it's kept in heaven for us. He means it's with God. It's guarded by him. Our hope is secure because God is watching over it for us. And he's watching over not only our future inheritance, he's actually watching over us as well. Peter says that by God's power, we're being guarded until our final salvation is revealed at the coming of Christ. Now again, this is about the certainty of our hope. God protects and keeps our hope, and he protects and keeps us. He won't let us miss out on this. But see, with me, this is again future-oriented, this whole thing. Peter's talking about our salvation, but he says it will be revealed in the last time. That doesn't mean that we haven't been saved yet. It's not meant to take for granted what Christ has already done, but it's meant to turn our focus from only what God has done to what he has yet to do. Yes, we've been saved by by grace. We've been saved from sin and death. We've entered into relationship with Jesus Christ, even now. But these things that we know now, they're just a foretaste of what will be. We've only gotten to start on the appetizers of this great banquet promised to us. So we don't now have fear of death. We're no longer slaves to sin now, but we still see and experience death. We still struggle in a world given over to sin and evil. The salvation that we wait for is that someday there will be no more death ever. We will live forever. We wait for a total salvation from sin, so there'll be no more temptations or struggling with our personal sins. There'll be no more sins against us, no more sins corrupting the world around us. We and the whole world will be sinless and holy. And the relationship that we have with God now, it is beautiful. It's amazing. It needs to be the very center of our lives But the salvation that we wait for says that someday we will see our Lord face to face. That's why Peter says that our salvation is yet to be revealed. The fullness of our salvation, the full extent of our hope, is something that we are still waiting for, still longing for. But the great hope we have says it's certain and sure, it's unchangeable and inevitable. And Peter goes on to say then, "...in this you rejoice." He means in all these things, this hope we have, this inheritance, this salvation, in this we rejoice. And if we stop right there for a moment, I think it's pretty easy to agree with Peter. Yeah, remembering what God has done, remembering what he will do, this salvation we wait for, it's easy to rejoice in those things. It's amazing, it's good, it's lovely, it speaks to our deepest longings for justice and righteousness and love and joy. Blessed be God for what he has done and what he will yet do for us. But Peter doesn't stop there. He continues to say, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. On Peter's mind is probably primarily persecution at this point, persecution by physical violence, by economic or social exclusion. 
The people that Peter wrote to were already losing relationships. They were already being attacked for following Jesus. But these trials don't only include persecutions, and he doesn't actually use the word because I think Peter wants us to think about all the other trials and pains and sadnesses that we know. We have so many reasons to grieve in this life. But Peter says, still, we rejoice in what God will do. And if I'm honest, this is the point where things get hard, and I don't know how much I agree with Peter or want to at times. Peter makes this sound pretty easy. It sounds like these Christians he's writing to are rejoicing easily in their suffering. I don't find it that easy to rejoice when I'm in pain. I don't find it that easy to think about what God will do when I think about what's happening right now, when I wonder what God is doing right now. So is it just that easy? Is that all it is? Is all it takes, no matter what, just to hold on to these hopes and expectations for what God will do, and then we'll be able to rejoice and move on? Well, in my studies this week, I found it really helpful. Um, There was one author who wanted to take some time to remind us just who Peter is, the one who wrote this book. And of course, there's a lot we can say about Peter, but there's two big moments that came to mind when I was thinking about this. Um, Think of Peter when Jesus predicted his own cross and suffering. He said, I have to die. And Peter took him aside and said, no way, Jesus, it can't be that way. You can't go this. Suffering can't be part of this. And Jesus rebuked him saying, get behind me, Satan. And then Peter is the one, when Jesus was arrested, he wanted to follow along. He wanted to see, and then there was danger he would be identified. There was danger that he might get joined to this suffering and problems. So he denied Jesus three times. Peter definitely wanted to avoid pain and suffering and grief as much as I do. But then Jesus died, and he rose from the dead. And Peter saw him. He touched him. He was forgiven and restored by him, and everything changed. Peter gave his life to the ministry of the gospel. He proclaimed Jesus throughout the Roman Empire, eventually landing in Rome, which is where he wrote this letter from. By this point, he'd known sufferings and trials of all sorts throughout his life. And he would know still more. Peter would eventually be crucified for holding fast to Jesus. You might know the story um, that he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to be killed in the same way that his master was. But perhaps you don't know that before they hung Peter on the cross, they crucified his wife in front of him. And as she cried out in pain, Peter's only response was to call out, remember Christ, remember Christ. So I think Peter Peter really does mean that if we're holding on to hope, if we're letting that expectation we have change us, that we can rejoice no matter what. But we have to know at the same time, it's not merely because of like the basic facts of our hope. It's not because the details line up well and because it sounds so beautiful. It's because the very core of our hope is life forever with our God who saved us. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Peter laid eyes on the risen Christ, and though he would stumble and make mistakes, he would spend the rest of his life holding fast to Jesus, to his sure and certain hope in him no matter what. And from that place of knowing Jesus, from knowing the forgiveness, grace, and love that comes from our great saving God, Peter's able to look at all of this differently. Notice he says these trials, they're only for a little while. And now he doesn't mean that they're actually short or few and far between. He means in comparison with what we wait for, eternal life with Christ, that these 60 to 80 years don't count for much. We can make it through. Even more, Peter knows in suffering an opportunity to test and purify our faith. His imagery is of refining precious metals, it's gold especially, through extreme heat. If you get that furnace hot enough, you will burn away the impurities. And Peter says our trials can be like that. 
They turn us to Christ. They increase our faith. We get through them um, by leaving behind those things that hinder us. They keep us more fully pursuing Jesus. And as we grow in this faith, as it continues on, it is more precious, Peter says. It's more lasting than even gold. He explains this by saying that our faith, tested, genuine, purified, will, when Christ returns, result in praise and honor and glory. This is tricky. I spent a lot of time here this week. Our faith will result in praise, glory, and honor, but whose? Normally, of course, we think of praise, honor, and glory, and we think those belong rightly to God. They do. They're actually what Jesus receives as the risen Savior. As he sits at the Father's side, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He has and deserves all praise, honor, and glory. But that's not the point here. Peter means here that our faith will result in praise, honor, and glory for us. Even more importantly, it is God, it is Jesus Christ who will do the praising. Jesus Christ, when he returns, will hold up each of his beloved and he will share his praise, his glory, his honor with them. That means with you and with me. I don't exactly know what that will be like, but I can imagine that something of what is on Peter's mind comes from the parables of Jesus and the parables when the master comes home and he rewards his servants. I think Peter is looking forward to Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy forever. I have to tell a story about my daughter here. She's three. It's the perfect age for sermon illustrations. Um, A few weeks ago, Ellis was helping Ellie build a little Lego set she had. And mostly that meant she wanted Ellis to put the pieces together. She would occasionally find pieces, but she really just liked to watch, and then she would turn the pages and the instructions when he wanted. But at one point, I mean, Ellis doing all the work, turns to her and says, Ellie, I really love building Legos with you. And Ellie was so thrilled. She said, really? Thank you, Ellis. Thank you. And she gave him this big hug. And it's just this wonderful moment. Um, Even that simple moment of expressed love and joy, it so made Ellie's day. It made our day. It's just contagious, right? So now think about the joy we know, we will know, as Jesus turns to us and he says, I love you. You did it. Finally, for today anyway, finally, Peter's going to move on from our hope, even in suffering, and he commends the faith of his readers. He says, they haven't seen Jesus. He means like he did. He saw Jesus fully alive in the flesh, three feet away and closer. He says, you don't, still don't see Jesus. Maybe that even means you aren't having like regular dramatic visions of him. But Peter says, you do love Jesus. You believe in him. You rejoice in him. This is important. Aside from really just two others, James and John, no one in the church could claim to be as close to Jesus as Peter was in those ways. But when Peter looks at the believers, he's not saying, your faith isn't as good as mine, you don't love him enough. He says, even though you don't have the amazing gift that I had, you love Jesus, you believe in him like I do. Of course you will have the salvation that I look forward to. Peter doesn't see a difference in their faith or the outcome of their faith. This matters a great deal for everything he's already said. He's talked about rejoicing in hope no matter our suffering. He's talked about receiving praise, honor, and glory when we persevere in faith. Now he's making sure that we know that isn't some unattainable goal for people who are only like him. You know, he wasn't telling us about what's only out there for the special people among us. He's saying this is for all of us. All of us can love Jesus, have faith in him, can hold on and rejoice in hope 
no matter what. And we need to remember again then that the people Peter wrote to, the people he's commending right now, are a lot like us. They're just the regular people of the church. They haven't uniquely seen Jesus. They believe the gospel when it's preached to them or when they heard it from their friends or their family. And Peter says their faith, our faith, is equally valid with his. He commends how strong and good it can be. And he doesn't mean that they always rejoice with inexpressible joy before God, but that they can and they did, at least sometimes. They love Jesus no matter what. This is, this can be, anyway, true for all of us. These believers have no big secrets to following Jesus. They met for worship, prayer, hearing scripture, sharing communion. They read and memorized scripture. They prayed throughout their day. They learned to give and to receive. These are all things we can do that we're still called to do today. Sometimes, though, uh, there's part of me that wishes there was like some special secret I just needed to learn. And then, you know, my whole faith and relationship with Jesus could be easy and amazing. Kind of comes up a lot in youth groups sometimes. Like, there's no, there's no key here. There's just, there isn't a special secret. Last spring, we had a, a really li- a lovely surprise visit from Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi. Um, he's a bishop in an area of Nigeria that's very rough. He and his churches have known a lot of very real, hard persecutions in their lifetime. But his faith is strong. He's a man of love and joy. You might remember he shared with us a letter that he had just written to his congregations. I was excited as he pulled that out. What are going to be his insights for his challenges to these people who are going through these things, whose lives seem so different from our own? He told them just to make sure they're reading their Bible every day. That was pretty much the whole letter. This practice was vital for your life. You can't put it aside, is what he told them. They needed it for their faith. So as we're listening to Peter today and as we go forward, as he tells us about the joy we have in our upcoming salvation, it will come, it will be utterly amazing. As Peter tells us that we can rejoice even in our sufferings, Peter's challenge for us personally isn't to find or do some new secret thing. He just expects us to continue on, to continue on in prayer, in Bible study, in worship, communion. He expects those things will be the very priority, top priority in our lives, of course, because he knows that in these things we will meet and be changed by Christ. And we will learn that joy that is inexpressible. Let's pray. Christ, thank you for what you have done and what you will yet do. Thank you for the great promises that you have um, made us born again into. Help us, Lord, um, in these day-to-day things and all that we do as the church to look to you again, to be refreshed in you, to be excited again in what will come. Inspire our imaginations um, with the hope and the joy we have and will have. Help us, Lord. Amen.